technical skill, flexibility, stability, and then the energy reserves to do that, whatever it is, I really feel the amount of hours that someone needs to train will dramatically go down and the result in which they do will dramatically go up. So it's like we can spend less time in the gym Mm -hmm. if we are supporting ourselves in the right way with good food, good working in. And the working in, for me, it was one of the biggest game changers because like not only does it involve, you know, synchronized breath with movement Mm -hmm. and that is a huge component. Like I think out of the assessments that I've done, there hasn't been one person who's had a breathing dysfunction that hasn't also simultaneously had a core dysfunction. Yeah. And so it's like, and if we're thinking about the core as the, as the stabilization center of the body, force production's from the ground up, but we have to first stabilize from the core down. So even if someone is eating good food, or most likely they're not eating good food, especially if they're an athlete, that's just classic, but they have a breathing dysfunction with most everyone has. Yeah. There's no way that they'll be able to stabilize to their potential and, and properly. Yeah. And so through working in and, again, through some of those, those uh, the flexibility and stability work, I really feel like not only is it a game changer in terms of how you can physically stabilize, but from the energetic side so that you're not always, your, uh, what, what do we say, uh, so that you're training and not draining. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Mike Salemi. Mike is an elite athlete with more than 15 years experience competing in and coaching numerous weightlifting sports. As a teenager, he became the WABDL world champion in the bench press and deadlift. He then discovered his love and passion for kettlebells and since then he has achieved the ranking Master of Sport as well as becoming the 2017 WAKSC World Champion in the Professional Long Cycle Division. He now shows people how to unlock the human potential by managing the foundations of health first and has created an advanced online program, Mastering the Kettlebell. Keep listening to the end of the podcast for a special offer on Mike's new course. All right, here it is, Living 4D with my man, Mike Salemi. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hey, uh, you heard the introduction on Mike. He's he's a bona fide superhero. He's the uh, kind that you get in the box when you go to the store, except he can hug you and kiss you and torture your ass in the gym like nobody's business. <laughs> so it's... The thing I haven't figured out is how do I get you back down in the box if I want to take you somewhere? You just got to get the mini mic training partner. And then just imagine you could get mini mic in the mail. What would need? What would we need to add to it? Water or air to inflate it? Air. Air? Air, yep. Okay. Hot air? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, you ever seen those plant pods that you can get like at nurseries and you put them in water? And they swell up. Oh, yeah. And they've got little seedlings in them. We could do a mini mic, you know, like a throwing bag. <laughs> but it's, but you know, 20 pounds or something. And you put it in your suitcase and you drop it in the bathtub. And then you get super mic. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just all I want is 5% when, That's... you when you make millions off of that. All right. The m- traveling mini mic in your suitcase that turns into super mic and kicks your ass then you have to be able to throw it you got to be able to do uh wrestling throws with it 
And we're going to need to talk to Great Spirit because I think only God knows how to breathe life into matter and, and so that many Mike that becomes Super Mike actually can throw you on the mat too because <laughs> otherwise it's just a, 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 a punching bag, right? They don't punch back. Mm. But uh, all fun aside, I'm, I've coached and been a therapist too and a counselor too hundreds of athletes, um, many, many super famous people, um, many, many sports teams and Olympic committees and movie stars. Uh, Chuck Norris was a client of mine, for example. And I got to say, Mike, there's not many people on this planet that are as disciplined as you are when it comes to really focusing on an objective and managing yourself and not eating junk and not staying up too late at night and eating super clean and really being legitimate about your self-care, your the monitoring systems I taught you for managing your heart rate and reading that and interpreting that and um, being disciplined about who you let distract you or social engagements or things where people want to give you beer or pot or DMT or <laughs> whatever they got <laughs> going around in that circle. Um, so first I just want to congratulate you because you came to me in rough shape, uh, injured with a tricky injury. You tried to get it figured out and didn't have good luck if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Um so you had to work through that, and that took a while because it was a tough one. Um, but you've really uh, you've really demonstrated a level of uh, authenticity and discipline that is really uh, hard to come by in athletes. A lot of them have great talent, but don't like to work hard, or they aren't really as good as their greatest competitors are, but they're very mentally disciplined, but they often compensate like little man syndrome and overtrain and over muscle and, you know, and so they end up getting chronic injuries all the time. But you really found the middle uh, and, and uh, you know, we stopped working together how long ago? About two and a half years, two years ago. Has it been that long already? Yeah, yeah 2016, Christmas. something like that. Wow. Feels like just the other day you and I were trashing each other in the gym. <laughs> <laughs> My back still remembers you. Um, I forgot where I was going there, but uh, I'm just grateful that you're here and I'm grateful to be able to share you. I'd love it if you could, um, for those that don't know you, I know you've done a lot of podcasts now because you've gotten quite famous. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> See all your discipline paid off. Hey. Um, give us a little bit of a background on, you know, who is Mike Salemi? Like, if I wanted to read a two-page document and get to know you good enough that I felt like I had a sense of who this guy was, what would I read? You know, I'm, I'm glad you posed the question like that because, as you mentioned, like, I've been on, you know, quite a few podcasts lately, and a lot of times the questions are asked in the same way and they kind of promote the same responses. But, you know, one thing that I haven't really shared on other podcasts is... You used to wear your sister's underwear? Well, if I had a sister, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I was just kind of wondering what, what we were going to hear here. No, no. Surprise I, me, would you? Well, I think, you know, looking back, 
certainly like my journey started as an athlete as a at, at a very young age like seven years old as a gymnast and uh, but even before that, like when I think about my upbringing, I really think a lot about my father. Yeah, I'm wondering about your father's influence because he's got to be a hardworking dude. The more and more, it's it's interesting because like, you know, we butt heads sometimes, certainly. But I know now looking back, it's because we have so many similar character traits. And my dad and my mom are from a small town in Sicily. And so they immigrated to the United States and pretty much started a business from nothing. My dad's been, I think from almost nine years old, no, actually earlier than that, like eight or so years old in Sicily, he was making espresso shots. He was on a, on a, on a little uh, milk crate. Why didn't you bring him up here with you? <laughs> I got to bring him down. I got to bring him up one time. You tell your dad if he makes a better espresso than me, then I have to challenge him to a popcorn making contest because <laughs> I'm not going to go down easy. I need a back door. He's good. He's good. And you can recognize a good, a good shot. Maybe that's where I got the appreciation for espresso from, you know, from that. Well, I just made you one hundred rate compared to your dad's. <laughs> I think, I think it'd be good. Yeah. That's a, you're not giving me an answer. You're leaving it in the middle. <laughs> Is it a tie or does your dad still got something on me? You know what? I think to be honest, and this is this is I'll say with with the best of intentions. Italians do make good coffee. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But honestly, in America, where it's gone, yeah. I feel like don't hate me, Italians, if you're listening, because I love you. Um, my both my parents are from Italy, but I feel like we've taken it to another level here. Like yeah. as you know, you you're drinking coffee from one of my buddies, uh, Cafe Organic. Cody. Yes. He's ro- I mean all yeah. organic, uh, wild grown stuff. He's roasting his coffee. Is he wood roasting? And I can't remember fire roasting it, or is he using some other mechanism? He's uh, you know what? I honestly don't. I know what the picture of the machine or the the drum looks like. Uh-huh. It's quite large, but it's steel. Um, yeah, probably fire, but I'm not quite sure to be yeah. honest. Yeah, it's hard to say. I just as you said, I I buy the coffee. You turned me on to him, and I asked him to custom roast it for me because I like coffee black. <laughs> I like it burnt. I love caramelized espresso, and he's the first guy that custom roasted me coffee that's exactly like I like it. Yeah, and he uses super high quality beans; they're clean as a whistle. They're fair trade, fair trade, fair trade. Everybody's traded fairly, <laughs> including me. Even though it's expensive, it's still really good. Yeah, you pay for what you get, and yeah. and in Italy, like a lot of the coffee, I think the machines are excellent. Like I think the technology superb. But most of their coffees are sitting on shelves for extended periods of time and right. it's like it's rancid and there's no – I mean coffee's a live food. You know, yeah. after a few weeks, it's pretty much dead. You treat it like you would almost like a tomato more or less. Yeah. And so when you're having fresh roasted coffee where you know where it's coming from and it's getting roasted, hopefully, you know, like, kind of like you like it. Yeah. Uh, the precision that I see here to make consistent espresso shots. So I feel like my dad's appreciation for espresso, but then also what I've learned from living in Italy, Cody's one of my best friends. And so I think we've taken it to the next level. But the shot you made me today, I would say is probably one of the best ones I've had. So Really? Can we have sex now? (laughs) (laughs) I'll pass on that. (laughs) I'll just stick with the espresso. Um, I call that sex in a cup, by the way. Okay. And, you know, I'm the pioneer of putting butters and oils in your coffee. So I, I uh, developed that one way back around 2004 and turned Laird Hamilton onto it. And then it started to spread from there because, you know, everybody likes to do what Laird's doing. Mm. And so that's cool. Well, he does a lot of cool stuff just like you do. So, all right. Well, now that we know I make a good espresso, um, who is Mike? 
tell me tell me things I don't know. Yeah, I mean, going going back to my dad, you know, I remember growing up from you know his upbringing. Always, I mean, he was always running family businesses mm-hmm. from all different stuff, from espresso making to being a pastry like a head pastry chef mm. uh, at a young age in high school, and like pretty much running an entire uh, pastry. Um, uh, like a delicatessen, but high end in, in Connecticut when he moved here from the States mm-hmm. to having a landscaping business to opening a marble and granite shop with his family for 18 years and working on his hands and knees to then from there actually manufacturing marble and granite tools when uh, this was during the Iron Curtain when the Iron Curtain collapsed. And so he was going to Ukraine and going to factories that were abandoned and making contacts and they were becoming uh, manufacturers of these tools. So from a very young age, I just remember having that example and it wasn't anything that was spoken it was something that was observed and felt and i think children from a young age were you know you got mod i mean we're they're like sponges yeah and so that was the example that i had always growing up was you put in work uh, you support you, your family and um so i think a lot of where i am a lot of that discipline came from observing the qualities of my father yeah and also to be honest having just amazing coaches along the way in every sport. My parents knew from a young age they wanted to me to, one, be active, mm-hmm. uh, to have discipline, and so they put me in gymnastics. Good. And, and gymnastics from, I don't know, maybe eight years old, something like that, uh, I really took to it for those young years. And once I hit like 12 or 13, like my coach was Krasimir Dunev. He was the two-time Olympian. He was the first person for Bulgaria to ever do six release moves continuously on the high bar. So he would wow. – Release, catch, release, catch, six in a row. And he got, I think it was silver in Atlanta. And so that was my coach growing up. And I remember from a young age, because he was built, he was jacked. And we would add, you know, we always looked up to him. He would actually run on Fridays, strength and conditioning sessions for three hours. Wow. And so I remember as a young kid, like now looking back, I remember being sore for three or four days. But at that age, placing the importance on strength and conditioning to develop some of these skills that you need to be to be a well-rounded gymnast and to be strong. And I always looked up to him. And then transitioning to, from gymnastics, I had a lower spine injury. I had a pinched nerve in my lower spine. It was L5S1. The chiropractor who rehabbed me was a drug-free uh, bench press champion of the world in an organization called the Wobble, W-A-B-D-L, mm-hmm. World Association of Bench Pressers and Deadlifters. Wow. Now, when I went there... I always loved strength and conditioning, even, you know, as a gymnast. And, you know, when we started talking, he was like, man, I think one of the things you might really gravitate towards if you really like strength and conditioning is powerlifting. I'm a part of a small basement powerlifting team. Why don't you come down and check it out? And I fell in love with it. It was all of us had a key. It was in the basement of someone's house. There was like 15 of us. And everyone in the gym was either a police officer, a garbage man, or a firefighter. And I just remember seeing how strong, especially the garbage men were, because back then <laughs> yeah. they didn't have the automatic stuff. Right. So they were pack canning the back, the, uh, the the big, big garbage can on their shoulder, carrying it upstairs. Yeah. And these dudes were just beasts on the deadlift. Yeah. And so it was a close knit family. And, and Mike Ludovico took me under his wing. The owner took me under his wing. And from there, that's also where I discovered Westside and Louis Simmons. Mm. And so I had some great teachers at that gym, the Palace Gym, went to when I was 19, traveled to Columbus, Ohio for a month to train under Louis Simmons. Mm -hmm. And just being around mentors, people who were better than me, people who had things that I wanted to achieve, whether it was qualities or were doing things that I really admired. And I've always tried to the best of my ability, find those mentors, find those coaches, because I knew I could learn a lot. Um, It's the fast track. 
you cut you think Louis yourself how long you 30 years you've been doing this just 35 in the two and a half years of our work together the amount of knowledge and, and actual real world experience that I've gained has it's well one it's priceless mm. but it's it's it, like you said it's fast tracked everything so when yeah. you when you find good mentors it's like you, you keep them close well the thing too is they've already sifted through mountains of stuff to figure out what works and what's just uh, gobbledygook on paper written by some PhD, you know, because, mm. you know, a lot of the scientific research that people that do rehab and conditioning work and coaching, a lot of the stuff they look at is uh, so fragmented. There's or, or it's, you know, weightlifting research is largely based on biomechanical models made out of stick figures, which is a hell of a long way from 120 joints and 400 pairs of muscles and the complexities of all the inner workings and a psyche to boot, right? So uh, when you latch on to a Louis Simmons or somebody like me, I mean, you're surrounded by, you know how much work I've put into research, but uh, I spent years and years and years going to courses all over the world and then taking everything I learned back and testing things very carefully and observing and keeping notes. And, and I, as you know, I measure things. So it's not just me fantasizing whether somebody got better. You know, you can't – their pelvis either improved its position posturally or it didn't. Their head's even are in a better place or it's not. So by the time someone like you comes to a guy like me, I've already done years and years of reading and sifting and sifting and refining and say, well, this works for this and this doesn't work for that. And then you you sit down with me and we get right to it and you ask questions and I give you answers. And that you like you said, you can't buy that amount of time, right? You couldn't you couldn't do it. Um so you know the great tip there, and, and this is part of the hero's journey, right? When you when you get your call to adventure, the first thing you gotta do is face the challenge. And the second thing you, you do if you're wise is I need to find someone who knows how to get through this minefield. So I don't die trying, you know, or if I die, at least I died doing a good job at it instead of just being a dumbass, you know, right. like somebody, you know, doing dangerous lift with a kettlebell that has no core function or something like that. But mm. so we, we, we know that your father really instilled a lot of discipline in you and that you got a great um, foundation athletically. Um, what are some of the... Uh, challenges you've had to work through along the way where most people might have given up? Well, I think one thing that comes up that probably a lot of listeners don't know is, you know, when we even, especially when we started working together, you know, when I first started competing in kettlebells, well, actually when I first graduated college, so I've been competing in kettlebell sport, which is what I transitioned to. I went powerlifting, a little bit of Olympic weightlifting in college, and then now 10 years um, in competitive kettlebell sport. And all throughout that time, I was working for my family business. So my father has a marble and granite company, a tooling company. My brother works for the company. My mom works for the company. And, you know, there was certainly physical challenges that I'll bring up that I experienced from, from kettlebell sport that you were a big part of, of helping me work through. But beyond the physical stuff, that business certainly gave me, you know, we, we built when the economy crashed that business was very successful. You know, it, it really supported me going to college. And so when the economy crashed, though, because we were so tied to the housing market, 
you know, the business plummeted mm. and we almost lost everything that supported me growing, growing up through life, paid for high school, et cetera. Yeah. And so there was, my dreams always been from 15 years old, I, at 15 years old, I was the main coach in the, uh, in the powerlifting gym I was coaching. As soon as Mike Ludovico taught me kind of the wings and I went to Westside, I came back and brought all the knowledge I could. I was training the whole gym in high school. I remember, uh, still being in high school and I was running the strength and conditioning program for the high school. And then while in college, I was the uh, D1 strength and conditioning coach for Santa Clara University. So I've always, always loved strength and conditioning. I hope you're enjoying this episode with Mike Salemi, and you can see why Paul was so excited to have him on the podcast. There are few people on this planet that know the kettlebell quite like Mike. But the reason why Paul loves working with him is that Mike gets how to effectively incorporate kettlebell training into a truly holistic program. He understands how diet can affect your training. He understands how mental emotional stresses impact your performance, and he gets how the four doctors operate. That's why Paul recommends Mike to people who want to learn to work effectively with the kettlebell. He knows how to fit that training in perfectly with your lifestyle. And it's also why we're so excited to announce Mike's special offer to our Living 4D with Paul Check listeners. Beginning now and ending on the 12th of June, All of our listeners can enroll in Mike's Kettlebell Mastery online course at a 20% discount. And when you enroll, you'll also receive special bonus content created by Paul and Mike just for you. The course offers over 400 videos that take you from the very basics like grip and positioning all the way to program design techniques and performance benchmarks. If you've been wanting to learn how to use the kettlebell, head over right now to checkinstitute.com forward slash kettlebell hyphen mastery. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash kettlebell hyphen mastery. When you check out, enter check 20 to claim your 20% discount and Paul check bonus content. Now back to Paul and Mike. And so when the family business kind of was taking a plunge or was really struggling, you know, I really, it was important to me to support my family. And so I came in as, to support on the marketing side of things. And that was for eight years. And as yeah. much as building up that business was a part of my dream and getting it back to a level, and it was a lot of hard work, um, I can totally, totally empathize with people who are in jobs that they don't enjoy. Not because that was a bad job. No. It was a great job. Uh, and it actually, you know, it, it gave me the means to work with you and 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 other things. And it just wasn't your heart's calling. N- not my heart's calling. I remember being, you know, sitting in front of a computer. Like I now, like almost every weekend, I'm out teaching and sharing, doing yeah. what I love, teaching holistic strength and conditioning. Mm-hmm. But to be sitting in an office, as great as it is, and thankfully I had my brother next to me, who's my best friend in the office next to me. But it just felt like a lot of times it was very, very, very emotionally tough and draining. Mm-hmm. Because I just wasn't doing what I felt like I was being called to do. Yeah. But I still had my eye on the prize. And I knew, and I knew at some level, as soon when I hit 30 years old, I said, looked at, you know, uh, actually something you had taught me, looking at your life like it's a crystal ball. Yeah. And if you look at your life as it's a crystal ball, and in one year from now or in one week from now, you're in the exact same spot as you were, what's that going to mean to you? What's that going to represent to you? Mm-hmm. And I'd been with the company for eight years. It's now very successful again, you know, putting in anywhere from 10 to 15 hour days, yeah. still competing as an athlete, still flying down once a month, working with you. Yeah. 
So that took a lot of discipline, but I just knew that when I hit 30, if I were to look at my life like a crystal ball, could I look at myself in the mirror and still be happy and still, yeah. and still love myself? And the answer was a visceral. It wasn't even spoken. It was a visceral no. And so I knew at that point that I had to have a discussion with my family and let them know mm-hmm. it was time for me to go. Yeah. Um, grateful for everything, but um, it's time for me to do my own thing uh, yeah. now and do what I love. Yeah. So that was, you know, eight years, if you think about it, you know, that was, that tested me a lot. That That's te- very hard for most people to do with their parents. Um, you know, most parents often unconsciously, a lot of times also consciously, want to still exert the influence over what they think of as their child to on their young man or young daughter who is now, you know, college age or even older. So to go to your parents and let them know that your dream uh, does not get fulfilled sitting in front of a computer and marketing a stone tool business, that's not an easy thing to do. And a lot of people can't do it. Yeah. They're too afraid of rejection from their parents, criticism, uh, rejection from extended family. Um, you know, so uh, uh, that's, that's one of the most important parts of the hero's journey because that's called individuation. Mm. That's where you just say, this is who I have to be because the pain of not being me can't be purchased with a paycheck. Mm-hmm. I ha- I'm willing to go hungry if I have to, to be who I know I am inside. And if a person doesn't do that, well, let me ask you this. Here we are, what, five years down the road or so. If you were still there, what would have happened to you? What kind of health problems might you have gotten? A hundred percent, hundred percent. I would have gotten something sickness. It was already eating me up. Yeah. I mean, it was like, there was nights where I would come home and just cry or just cry in front of the computer. And it's just, yeah, it was, it was just heartbreaking for me to look at even just to see the gifts within myself Yeah. and to feel like I wasn't out there giving what I love doing and that supporting more balanced athletes and coaches and where I just get so much fulfillment with that. And so it's like, Yes, we all need to make money and we all need to survive, et cetera. But like, I am so much happier now. Mm-hmm. And I just know if I would have continued in that, yeah. one, I would have been no fun to be around yeah. because it was an emotion. It was a roller coaster. Yeah. And if people asked me, how are you doing? I would just put on a fake, you know, fake smile. Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing yeah. great. But if it was someone like you asking me a question or someone who really like wanted something, w- truly wanted how I wanted to know how I was doing and not just like, oh, I'm doing great. Like they would have gotten the real answer. Yeah. Um, so I would have gotten sick for sure. Yeah. Well, we worked on things like that. I introduced you some techniques for getting inside yourself, like painting. Yeah. And uh, other fun ways to heal. <laughs> um, but in uh, our coaching, as you know, we don't just talk about weightlifting. It's about life. So, um, you know, tell us also... And I've really enjoyed this, right? I have that in common with you. You know, I came from a family where, you know, we ran a farm. So it's it's a business, right? You got to make money off your farm. You can't eat, right? Um, and I have my fair share of, you know, discipline stories. And I don't want to be here, but <laughs> right now I have not much choice. So I, I appreciate that a lot as someone who's lived a lot of those experiences. And I love 
knowing that I make a decent espresso. <laughs> I, I love the background you come from because it's, it's really highly athletic. It's not like someone says, oh, I grew up trail running or playing volleyball. I mean, being a gymnast, being a power lifter, um, you know, you're doing a lot of like being a gymnast. I mean, how much more athletic can you possibly get than that? Mm. You know? So right in the early ages, you're building a very, very good nervous system and, and a lot of uh, core integration. So you know how to recruit at a deep level and you can't recruit more than you can stabilize the systems designed to protect you from that unless you're using drugs and you can blow the thing apart. Um, but I'm curious for the people that may not know, share what, what your accomplishments are in kettlebell sport. Cause I know you've got several of them. You got some accomplishments uh, quite nicely when we were working together. I know you got heavier and heavier and <laughs> stronger and stronger and then um, uh, I'm just curious, where did all this discipline and, and mentorship get you when it comes down to, you know, something you can hang on the wall or, you know, the stuff that we no- normally recognize as an accomplishment, such as this championship or that master's. And, and before you tell us, make sure you let us know what does it mean to have a Russian, a Russian master's title? Yeah, certainly. Because most people, they don't really know what that means. So what does it take before you tell us how many you have and what, <laughs> how many ways you can torture yourself? Tell us what it means to have that title. Yeah. Well, in before uh, kettlebell sports, so in powerlifting, um, so my best numbers uh, was probably around when I was 19. It was 19 and I was weighing 178, so I was in the 181 weight class. So in powerlifting, drug-free uh, best lifts at 19 were 605 on the squat, uh, 470 on the bench, and then 615 on the deadlift. Wow, that's good. Uh, so that that at that time for the teenage was was world champion in, in the WABDL. And then in kettlebell sport, so kettlebell sport, there's a few events uh, that you can compete in. Now, today, there's more and more events to make it a little bit more friendly for uh, just a wider audience. Yeah, to make it, make it a little less brutal. Um, there's all sorts of events, but the main classic events that I compete in and that I really loved, especially when we were working together, was there's a lift called long cycle. Mm-hmm. And essentially, long cycle is, is, a, is a clean and jerk. Um, and essentially, what it is is two bells, one bell in each hand. And in the professional division, I would compete with double 32 kilo bells. So you're looking at like 72-ish to 74-ish pounds each. Meaning one in each hand. One in each hand, yeah. So like what, whatever, 150 pounds plus. Yeah. Um, so you would compete with two thirty-two kilo bells, and the standard in the professional division is a ten-minute unbroken time frame clean and jerk. So, essentially, even if you're not familiar and you're listening um, in kettlebell sport, a clean and jerk is where you swing the kettlebells through the legs, then they br- they raise to chest level, and then once at chest level, you jerk them over the head into when the arms are completely locked out and straight. And you repeat that motion as many times as you can in 10 minutes. You cannot rest. You cannot hold them by your side. The only quote-unquote rest periods you have is if you hold the kettlebells overhead with the elbows locked out or at chest level in what we call the rack position. Mm -hmm. So that's the event. Um, But also the other classic event is, in fact, 20 minutes. And essentially what it is is in the the male male professional division, you've got to do two 32-kilo bells. 
10 minutes unbroken jerks. So from chest level overhead, and then you have to usually later on in the day, you'll do a single kettlebell snatch with one hand switch at 32 kilos. Mm -hmm. It's up to you when you wish to switch. Most people switch around five minutes, Mm -hmm. but that's 20 minutes total. And that one's called biathlon. Oh my God. And so I've competed in both. And my goal, like my first goal was always to hit master of sport. And so depending on your body weight, the bell weight that you use and 32 kilos is, is how you can achieve really master of sport in that event. So bell weight, body weight, and then repetition number based off of that, there's a specific number for your body weight of what number you have to hit in the 10 minute time frame to be, you can think of master of sport as kind of like your black belt. Mm-hmm. Like you've been training for a long time, you've got adequate mastery and you can hit these numbers. And I had been trying for I was at 32 for a good amount of time, at least, I don't even know. I was trying for probably a total of three to four years, but at 32s for at least two years before that. And every single competitive effort, I would get close, but I would fail. I'd come within five or six repetition of master sport. And then I would train my tail off, chain my ass off for three months. And then I'd come close and fail and come close and fail. And I knew I had it in me, but what was holding me back essentially, and I didn't know until after, until we started working together, was, uh, well, this was, there's many things, but the, the symptom of what was being expressed was a compartment syndrome yeah. in my left arm. So pretty much at every tough effort that I would do in training or in competition, my arm would swell up. I would lose all feeling in the arm and it was pretty painful. So I'd be forced to put the bells down before the 10 minute duration. And uh, I remember being in Russia and training with the national team. And I remember even this is a story. I think back, uh, I was talking to one of the lifters who was like 16 time champion of Russia. And it was me and a group of guys around him. And we're like, what do you, actually, I was asking the question. I remember this. I said, what do you attribute all these years of success? Like how in the world did you achieve, did you win this tournament or the championship of Russia 16 times in a row or 15 times? And it was so funny because he spoke English and a thick Russian accent. He's like, two things, two things. The first thing is that you have to be willing to die on the platform before the 10 minutes are up. You have to be, and you, and, and you can look at, if, if anyone's listening and, and you type in the name, uh, this wasn't the person I was talking to, but type in the name Sergei Rachinsky on YouTube, Long Cycle, and you'll see him doing his 10 minute set. And legitimately, there's at least three or four videos where the bells are overhead locked out and he goes until he's passing out. And then literally the bells fall to his side. They bounce crazy. And then he face plants down. And so the nurse has to come with smelling salts. And that's just what those, I mean, that's how tough these guys are. But so he goes, you have to be willing to die on the platform before 10 minutes. And then the second thing he goes, and he said it like super, like in a high pitch voice. And the second thing, drugs. (laughs) And we're like, whoa, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like in America, we call those supplements. You mean supplements, right? And he goes, no, no, no. We're all adults here. Drugs. And so I was like, oh, all right. So we were just dying about that trip. That'll increase the length of your cycle (laughs) and shorten the cycle of your life. But when I think, and that's partially, you know, what I always had in my head when I was trying to train for this master sport title that I wanted to go, even if I couldn't quite get the reps at first, like the goal was to go 10 minutes. That was my goal. And I always had that in my head, like you're not a man or whatever it is. You got to go the 10 minutes, but I just couldn't, but I knew inside I had it in me. Yeah. And so I always kept training. And then that's what, you know, after, uh, two and a half years of working with a whole host of practitioners that, you know, I learned a lot from each one, Mm -hmm. but no one could really resolve this multifaceted issue because even though it was a compartment syndrome, you know, when you got me on the table, like we found, well, I had a 
quite severe atlas axis subluxation. Yeah. I had an anatomical short leg. There was a huge imbalance between my postural system and my phasic system. Yeah. My lifting technique needed tweaking. Um, so there was a whole number of things. You had thoracic outlet syndrome. Thoracic outlet syndrome too. Yeah. So yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So which is a the thoracic outlet syndrome would be tied in with the compartment syndrome because the thoracic outlet not only carries the nerves that feed your arm, but it carries the arteries and veins. Mm. So what happens is when someone has a thoracic outlet syndrome, they don't have normal venous return. So, you know, one of the tests I did on you may not remember is I have you hold your hands in the air like you're under arrest and open and close your hands and I time you Mm. and I watch things like what are the color of your arms and what are you feeling? And I'm also, uh, with a lot of these tests, I'll monitor your, your radial pulse. And so when I put your hands in that position, your pulse completely disappeared. Usually it drops for a second just because the gravitational pull pulls the blood down and the heart pushes it back up. And then it should start, you know, I should feel the pulse in your wrist as you're opening and closing your hands. But yours went away and didn't come back. So I knew right away, okay, he's got thoracic outlet syndrome then i said to figure out where it was coming from because it can get trapped in several different places but um the point i'm making is is if you're lifting weights like you are for long periods of time you have to have circulatory flow or the muscles just fill up with lactate and metabolic waste and they hurt so bad they'll seize up when i used to race motocross my forearms got so tired they went into lockdown like a a tetanus like a, a spasm that won't quit. Mm. And it was brutally painful. People used to have to slide my hands off the handlebars. I couldn't even move my hands. I was completely and utterly fried. So anyhow, um, if you're doing all that lifting, you see, you can't get blood to go back up toward the heart. So it gets trapped in the arm and the muscles that are doing the most work usually end up having the most trouble and that's right in your region of your brachioradialis where you pull the bell up mm-hmm. and that was one of the things we had to work on because when i watched how you were doing and i could see that you were overworking your neck shoulder arm complex relative to the integration of your hips and getting the thrust from down below because that's sort of the the a lot of the kettlebell <clears throat> lifters that haven't had like a orthopedically tuned in coach end up leaning forward too far. So that forward lean, which makes it more efficient because the more big muscles you use, the more nutrients and more oxygen and, and more waste you produce. So you, you eat up more fuel, but you produce more waste. So like if you just go out in a field and lift hay bales for about three hours or four hours without a break, mm. And these 100 to 125 pound bales are coming at you every four <laughs> seconds and you got to throw them up onto a wagon, like chest height. Uh, you know, you do that for a while and you realize, wow, man, this is like, takes a lot of oxygen. You're panting. You're, you're in a, an anaerobic, aerobic situation. So if there's not a good enough blood flow coming back, then it backs up. And then so you get all this metabolic waste and static blood in there. But compartment syndromes happen when the muscle uh, expands due to contraction, repeated contraction beyond what the fascia will allow it to. So it actually is like um, it gets strangled inside of its own envelope and it's dangerous actually. You can lose the muscle. You can actually kill the muscle 
Well, they wanted to do surgery on it. They wanted yeah. to slice it open, and I yeah. knew, like, I'm not doing that until it's the very, very last resort. Yeah. This month is Movement Month here at the Czech Institute, and we've invited some fantastic guests on the Living 4D with Paul Czech podcast, who are experts in the fields of exercise and functional fitness. In addition to Mike Salemi, in the following weeks, you'll hear from Ben Pokalski, the IFBB professional bodybuilder and winner of the 2018 Mr. Canada competition. Dale Walker, who is an ex-Royal Marine Commando, extreme sports physiotherapist and lecturer in physiotherapy at the University of Salford in the UK. And Greg Muller, founder of Lead the Pack and a premier human performance coach who has spent over 20 years working with elite athletes, elite force soldiers and professional sports teams. If you want to learn how to work out more intelligently and effectively, you're in for a treat this month. In addition, we're celebrating Movement Month by offering all of our listeners a special discount on one of Paul's most important online courses, Scientific Back Training. Designed for serious strength and conditioning specialists, rehabilitation specialists, and personal trainers, Scientific Back Training will teach you the functional anatomy of the torso and the biomechanical intricacies of trunk stabilization. You'll learn how to use a control systems approach as part of a holistic program for back pain and how to perform range of motion assessments on the lower extremities. Scientific back training will also teach you how to best select stretches and exercises for preventing and alleviating back pain, as well as program design considerations such as proper exercise technique, exercise selection and exercise modifications. If you've a serious desire to develop the best possible conditioning programs for yourself and your clients, scientific back training will be an invaluable learning resource. Get your copy online now at checkinstitute.com forward slash SBT. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash S for sugar, B for boy, T for tiger. Enter L4D back when you check out to receive your 15% discount. And now let's get back to Paul and Mike. But like, I, I actually didn't even know how common thoracic outlet syndrome was. And I was just training with, uh, actually I was at the Arnold and there was one at the Arnold Classic. And there was a, uh, now he's a buddy of mine, uh, Richard Graham. He's a former Navy SEAL. And he had thoracic outlet syndrome. And they had to, re- I, obviously it wasn't rehab properly, but they had to remove one of his ribs. And so he had to re- retire from being a, a Navy SEAL just because of that. Because he was actually mm-hmm. doing... I forget what his like main job was, but he was doing a lot of like hazmat stuff in the air mm-hmm. on the on the trips, and he's like, "Yeah, it took me out." Like they removed the rib, and then they said it was too risky or something like that to go into altitude. You can't um, stabilize your neck anymore once they do that. Mm-hmm. I had a girl that was a uh, on the LPGA who had thoracic outlet syndrome, and she saw doctor after doctor, and finally they convinced her the only way to address it was surgery. So they cut out her first rib, yeah, and remove her anterior. And medial scaling because there's no anchor point. If you take the first rib out, the anterior scaling's got no place to anchor. So it completely screws up the stability between the lateral stabilizers on one side of your neck and the other. So this poor girl's head was leaning off to the side all the time, which gave her a chronic atlas subluxation. And the 
the sad part of it is, is none of her symptoms went away and she could, now she couldn't play golf because she couldn't hold her head properly. So she, by the time she got to me, was just an emotional wreck. But as a little side note to, to show you just how challenging life can be sometimes, I figured out fairly quickly through my assessment that she had trigger points in the interspinous ligaments hmm. and that she had a trauma to her neck that I can't remember what had happened to fall off a horse or a car crash or something at some point. But the interspinous ligaments between the spinous processes, there's ligaments that connect them together that stretch a little bit when you bend forward. And they get really nasty trigger points in them. And I had studied sclerotogenous referral patterns, which is the periosteum on the bone and ligament referral patterns is a, a book called Ligament and Tendon Relaxation by George Hackett that came out in about, I don't know, 1950, maybe 1954, something like that. And he pioneered this. And I had studied uh, how to use um, acupuncture needles to do a Japanese technique called dry needling so that you treat trigger points with needles because I'm also licensed as a physician's assistant. So I used to inject them with Marcaine, lidocaine, xylocaine, and things like that. But the the trauma from the needle is enough that it hurts so bad that you can't really tell what's worse, the trigger point or the needle, (laughs) you know, because you got to dig around to find the epicenter and there's often multiple. So you're poking around in there doing this kind of therapy. So when I took this training from a medical doctor named C. Chan Gunn out of Seattle – and learned his technique, you used a special plunger needle, but it was an acupuncture needle and had a stainless steel sleeve. So it was just like giving a medical injection. So I I had had all this training and knew what kind of things caused these kinds of symptoms. She was describing her symptoms to me. I'm like, this girl probably has ligament trigger points or periosteal trigger points, which create what's called a sclerotomal referral, which is the pattern of referral from the coating on your bones, just like you can get dermatomal pain patterns you can get like if a muscle pulls too hard on a bone like people bench pressing a lot and straining the insertion of the muscle to the periosteum it can trigger off pain referral so you might wonder why the hell your shoulder's aching all the time but not realize it's coming from a pectoral attachment to your sternum Mm. or to one of your ribs and the pain may not be even associated and this might not even realize you might not realize that it, even though it hurts less than your shoulder, the shoulder's coming from there. So long story made short is I treated these ligaments with needles. And when I finished the session, first session uh, that I did that therapy on her, I got her up off the table and said, how do you feel? And she just broke out crying. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's wrong? She said, this is the first time I've been without pain in something like 12 years. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't have any pain. I have no symptoms at all right now. So I treated her probably for about eight or 10 visits to teach her what she needed to know, design a program for her. But she'd been doing this for about 12 years and and then had the surgery. And that was the first time ever that her pain was gone. So her big question, and I've had this question many times, is did they really need to cut my first rib out? Right, well... I'd hate to say it, but they probably misdiagnosed her. Yeah. And the problem is, is that trigger points in those ligaments create thoracic outlet syndrome symptoms. Hmm. So if you don't do all the tests for blood flow and muscle fatigue 
and range of motion and trigger points, then you just go by the symptoms, right? If you got a headache, oh, you take an aspirin. If you can't poop, you take a laxative, right? So that's how the medical system works. And so it's sad. But anyhow, now that we've had a nice, interesting therapy conversation <laughs> and we know that Mike had a tricky injury that took a lot of work to get through, how many masters have you got? So I was able to do uh, get master of sport in the 32-kilo uh, five-minute division, 10-minute division, and then also uh, hit master of sport now in biathlon. So the last competition right I did, I always wanted to be – uh, the lifter who could, one of the lifters who could do, I think there's in the United States, probably five or six of us. Yeah. I don't think there's more than six who have gotten master of sports with that ranking in both long cycle and biathlon, because it takes a slightly different athlete to be good at both of those. Well, hell yeah. Like long cycle is like, that's the gritty. That's like, that's a, a ultra marathon with lots of weight on your hands, yeah. <laughs> on your neck and your shoulders and your back and your body. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people watching that, you know, like someone who's never, done like tried to train for something like that to just watch it they really can't even imagine how hard it is i mean you and i've trained together you know i've got some toughness in me i'm not i'm not just a a a wimp in the gym not at all but like i if i was like i said to you before when we were in the gym if if i was my age i mean if i was your age when you and i met we would have killed each other (laughs) Because I had your kind of determination, and I, as you know, don't like to lose. It took me a lot of injuries and a oh, lot of shit. testosterone to learn, okay, to – like I toyed with the idea of getting my master's in the, in the 32-kilogram uh, – level years ago, even before I met you because it was really popular and I met Pavel and had a conversation with him and and – you know, when I would start doing kettlebell training like that, I was like, oh my God, man, this, this is, I am going to have to train really hard with all my stabilizer work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to manage my diet perfectly. I mean, you swing kettlebells that much. That's a lot of weight hanging off your neck, man. In one pattern. And, in, in, yeah, and on, in the same pattern that many times, yeah. you get prime, what I call pattern fatigue. And, you know, I'm not psychologically well-designed for that. I like boxing because I can move. I can change directions. I can, you know, I can never, I can, I don't ever have to keep doing the same thing twice. I can be explosive. I can set the tempo as a fighter. But when you're doing that, it's balls to the freaking wall for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it, Dude, I've seen you with calluses so thick that your mother's hands were dry. I've honestly had Mike come in, and he had wounds on his hands from the workouts I wrote him, where his calluses were like three layers of skin deep. And if you pulled it back, it looked like a hole in your hand, and you were wrapping that shit up and training right through it. And I'm like, okay, he's got what it takes, just a matter of time. To you know, because it was a very, very. I mean, we had to build you up from the ground, right? From right. from baby rehab exercises all the way back to forty kilogram kettlebells. Yeah, the infant development work for sure was yeah. huge. For yeah, sure. yeah. So, you know, all, all I'm saying, 
the ladies and gentlemen who have never tried this, it's brutally hard. It's brutally hard. Um, and as a guy that likes hard work, I can say that. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I went through with you is what I call the Czech formula for success. And I developed this a long, long time ago because of the, all the athletes I was rehabilitating and seeing the same problems over and over, which was imbalances in the tonic and phasic system and postural imbalances and structural imbalances, rigid sections of their spine coupled with hypermobile sections of their spine or a rigid thoracic spine coupled with a hypermobile throwing arm or hitting arm or dominant arm. And so I developed the formula, which is first you have to restore flexibility and that includes joint mobility, not just muscles because it doesn't matter if you stretch your muscles a lot if you don't have normal joint motion. Mm. In fact, you can get badly injured. I've rehabilitated several yoga instructors that blew discs out of their back uh, doing amazing things as yogis, not realizing that many of their joints were locked up and weren't moving. So they have to transfer the force down to whatever will move. So someone, for example, that has too much stiffness in their rib cage as a yogi usually ends up with an L5-S1 disc injury. I had one lady with four thoracic disc herniations and she was a very famous yoga instructor, but her spine was locked up. So she was traumatizing her lumbar spine and her groin and SI joint because she had to compensate somewhere to do all these wild back bends and tie yourself in knot postures. <laughs> and so, um, what what's your feeling now having been through two and a half years of work with me knowing what you had when you came having been a very strong athlete knowing a lot of the best athletes in the world yourself you compete with them you talk to them you interact with them you train lots of them you're a ther a, a check professional you're a teacher mm -hmm. so i mean you do classes with all sorts of people from all kinds of athletic skills what what would you say is your take on the importance of first restoring muscle uh, and joint flexibility and or mobilization of the joints followed by effective stability training, then going into strength training and then power training, as opposed to what most people today do, which is start with the exercises that are most fun, the most cool. And for most guys, the ones that are so challenging, they're dangerous for you to do. And we call that power training. And sometimes developing a strength base, but almost never having proper integration of the stabilizer system and the prime mover system or knowing what stretches to do and what joint mobilizations to do. Right. Yeah. I think from, well, one, I was the perfect example of that, like in my own body and I was doing, I mean, crazy efforts with, with kettlebells, but obviously I had that imbalance, which was, a, I honestly feel like. You know, going along with that, if we look at like not only my personality type, but my fiber type that we kind of discovered was, you know, I've, I've always been more of a, of a power athlete, more of an explosive athlete, a strength athlete. And so that's why this type of event, one, attracted me because it was so damn challenging to do an endurance, an endurance, a strength endurance based sport for 10 minutes when honestly anything over three reps sounded really high. Well, I remember when I was coaching you, telling you, Mike, 
just watching you train and, and working with you, I'm like, you're just like a fast twitch monster. You're designed right. for Olympic lifting or power lifting. You're not designed for these long events. I said, dude, you're going to have to seriously grow your slow twitch and type 2A fiber population to do this. And, and it used to blow my mind because what that told me is it must be like living in hell after about three minutes in your body because you're not designed for that. You're like a sprinter just signed up for a hundred mile race, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm saying to do that has to be mentally challenging. And I think that's too, like, as a, as a related side note, I think that's why it's so important to know your athletes because like, it's going to take time for you to learn them because even though let's for, let's say, for example, like kettlebell sport is a, is a more strength endurance, more along the lines of endurance based lifting. I mean, 10 minutes nonstop if you have a very strong strength or power athlete, your approach and your programming is going to be slight, could be slightly different. Like I remember one of the things that we kept in, which I still loved was, you know, some power lifts, deadlifting quite regularly, Olympic weightlifting in one, make sure the, like I was reintegrating kind of that postural, uh, that postural alignment, yeah. but also like building that strength reserve because like yeah. when you, if you can, I'm just, we'll just throw this out there. Like, even though the, the stability requirement for kettlebells is incrementally higher from a barbell, uh, if you do a pattern that's somewhat similar, let's say it's a pull pattern or bend pattern and you can deadlift 500 pounds or whatever it is, or even if you did kettlebells and you could do, you have that strength reserve to lift 48 kilos. Yeah. Uh, then paradoxically or interestingly enough, the 32s are going to relatively seem light yeah. and you can, so it, that's where, you know, learning your athlete comes in and that's one thing I'll really, re- I really remembered, but it takes time to learn that. But yeah. in my case, going back to the flexibility, stability, strength, power kind of formula, well, one, I was living proof of that. And, and then the other thing too, is like now having that experience being rehab from the beginning stages. Now I feel like much more able to recognize that. And to be honest, it's, it's super rampant, not only in, in sports, but also now I work quite heavily with firefighters yeah. and MMA athletes. So those are the two main populations I work with. I mm-hmm. train a lot of people, but it's like, no matter what the exercise is, kettlebell swing, kettlebell, whatever, Bulgarian bag work could be amazing exercises. But if the person doesn't have the proper length tension relationships, doesn't, or doesn't have that alignment, then the injuries, it's not a matter of, we always say, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when. Yeah. And I'm personal <laughs> experience that it's not like foo-foo stuff, whatever. It's, it's the real deal. And so that's the importance of having a corrective phase. And you could put whatever you want, like you could change the word corrective to whatever you want to do, but you have to restore these things yeah. so that one, you get out of the exercise you're trying to ultimately achieve. You get out what you're trying to do, yeah. but also you're able to do that without getting injured. And so that's the first step is flexibility, stability. If you do that, like I even remember, you know, one of the strategies that we use in kettlebell sport in order to last 10 minutes is a specific compensation strategy we use in the rack position where mm-hmm. we rest the elbows on the iliac crest yes, to yeah. kind of turn off the shoulders. And you have to do that if you're going to compete for 10 minutes. And we, I remember going through the process of us trying to really build up to see if we could do uh, around that. But what we found out was like that's needed to compete at that level. Yeah, you're, you're – see, here's one of the challenges. Most people don't know this. Tonic muscles are inherently predominantly slow twitch. So all the muscles that are called tonic, which are the ones that are designed for long postural loading, like your quadratus lumborum is tonic, your pectoralis minor is tonic, your biceps are tonic, uh, you know, your upper trapezius is tonic, 
so when you look at these muscles, they're all muscles that are holding you up against gravity and have something to do with positioning. Like the pec mm. minor stabilizes your shoulder blade. So your humerus has a working platform, right? And it works in concert with its functional antagonists, the rhomboids and the middle trapezius. So they're like a stabilizing and positioning, right? If you think of your arm like a, a gun on a turret and your arm is the barrel of the gun, and the, the scapula is like the turret. So if the turret stops moving, but the barrel keeps going, it'll snap the barrel off. Well, that would be your glenohumeral joint, right? Your joint capsule. So the tonic muscles um, have to be kept in balance. And if you uh, don't, um, but I'm, the point I'm getting to is that Mother Nature had to actually make a compensation, and this is a strange – I think I'm probably the only person that's ever recognized this because I've studied a ton of literature and never seen it mentioned. The erector spinae that hold you up are predominantly postural muscles and therefore ideally slow twitch dominant. So if you, if you take a sample of the multifidus in the low back, you'll find it's predominantly slow twitch. You do it in your cervical spine, it's predominantly slow twitch. Mm -hmm. But lo and behold, the ones that cross the apex of the thoracic curve are working all the time. So you'd think, wow, there'd be a ton of slow twitch muscle in there. Think gravity's constantly trying to pull you down. If you're sitting in a chair and you fall asleep, your head falls forward because the center of gravity of your head is in front of the axis of rotation in your neck. So if you sit and read a book, you slouch down because those muscles get tired quite quickly. But interestingly enough, the erector spinae in the thoracic region are high, fast twitch. So I'm, I'm looking at studies on this and I'm going, there's got to be a reason Mother Nature put fast twitch muscles right in the area where you need a lot of slow twitch muscles. And I was meditating on this and I realized, ah, if you had to throw a spear and your thoracic erectors were slow twitch, you would never be able to rotate your trunk fast enough to explosively accelerate a spear to hunt or an axe to defend yourself or a punch to defend yourself because the oblique muscles are predominantly fast twitch. So if you rotate explosively and you got a bunch of fast twitch muscles, but the ones that control the position of your vertebra are lagging behind, you're in deep shit. Yeah, you're not going to last very long. You're not yeah, you, you'd just be the worst hunter in the world. <laughs> Um, so what you ran into there with the rack problem, when we were trying more of an upright posture for, to try to protect your thoracic outlet was really the main reason for that is that those postural muscles just cannot do that kind of long-term loading because they don't have enough slow twitch fiber in them anyhow. Mm -hmm. Now we were, I told you at the time we were pioneering a new technique and I said, what I'm trying to teach you to do is hard to do, but we have to figure out how to get you through this because we can't keep collapsing that thoracic outlet like that because it'll continue to give you trouble. Right. But that's when we said, okay, well, we're going to have to do a mix of the two. Remember our conversation on that? Yeah. I said, you have to figure out a hybrid style, but you have to kind of work with it. If you don't, aren't careful, you can give yourself a thoracic outlet syndrome from hanging out with heavy weights on your chest for long periods. But if you don't stand up straight... I mean, and if you stand up straight, it'll make you tired. So we kind of came to the conclusion we had to mix that somehow. 
Yeah. And there's a few things that comes up for me. I think it's been, you know, a constant re, uh, redefining process or evolution. And, and like one of the, the coaches that I work with specifically on kettlebell sport technique is a coach, uh, Dennis Vasiliev, who's now eight time world champion. And he did 101 reps unbroken at double 32s. And that's long crazy. Cycle. But this is the same. So he's a part of the orange kettlebell club, which is the main club that I, I coach for. Uh, and he's the lifter, if you recall, that I brought up a YouTube video to you years yes, ago. And I was yeah. like, his technique is like, it's more or less, it's more upright yeah, in nature. It was very, very beautiful. And I'm so fortunate that he moved from Russia just recently to now Berkeley, so not far wow. from me. And so I just feel blessed to have him around. And, and he's, I would say, in, at least in my experience, he is the most, he has the most, in terms of the kettlebell sport community, the most balanced approach to kettlebells, how much he focuses on flexibility, eating good nutrition. Um, so I feel blessed to have him around. But one thing that comes to mind in terms of just an epiphany that I had with the rack position is a lot of times in kettlebell sport or just in kettlebells in, in general, when people are using that rack position, a lot of times a coach or a lifter will think that they need to sit in that position for extended periods of time in order to get the elbows on the iliac crest. Right. Most people can't reach it. <clears throat> right. But what I was amazed at is when we were first starting the corrective phase, and I think we actually for the first, probably solid first year, we didn't do that rack position to help rehab the thoracic outlet syndrome. But I was amazed at just the kind of the flexibility program that I was on. As soon as I went back without doing any positioning and sitting in that position, I was able to hit a rack position, which might not seem like much, but someone who hasn't done any training in that position now, just by doing flexibility to balance out the system can enter the position that I need to. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. Huge for me. So that was when, at least from a sports specific perspective, I realized the value of just like, not only from a health and longevity standpoint, but how just a, a flexible, corrective and specific individualized flexibility program can help me get into these kind of sports specific positions that I needed to get into without necessarily needing to drive, not sitting there for minutes on end. Yeah. Um, so that was an interesting observation and experience. One of the challenges, as you know, is that to really do a program properly requires a skilled assessment and very few people in the exercise or even rehab world know how to do the kind of assessment it takes to gather the data that's needed to decide which joints need to be mobilized and exactly which muscles need to be stretched. People think you can just do global stretching, but they don't realize the body's like a musical instrument, right? It's Imagine if you have a, a beautiful 12-string guitar, Eric Clapton's guitar, <laughs> if you loosen – Every one of those strings, general stretching, the question I have is, does it play better music? Mm. No. It's out of tune. And if you tighten them all, does it play better music? No. It's not tuned yet. So one of the things that I try to help people understand is that your muscles are actually living sound and energy conductors, and they are holding hands with glands and organs and each of those muscles operates on a frequency that correlates with the glands and the organs that they're linked to neurologically and through the arteriovascular system. So in essence, when you're using your arms, you're generating power that if you're not using more energy than you're generating, which we'll get into in a minute, then your heart channels gets the first dibs on that energy because it's linked to the heart channel and the lung channel, right? Mm -hmm. So... Without going through all of them, what I'm saying is 
if somebody is too tight, it changes the frequency so they're out of tune, not just in the, in the length, tension, relationships, and posture, but they're actually out of tune in ways that affect the glands, the organs, and the psyche of the individual. And I'll give you an example of that. Have you ever had emotion trapped in your body and then released your abdominal wall like I taught you to and got up off the ground and went, oh my God, <laughs> something happened? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, certainly. So there you go. When people keep doing too much abdominal exercise, they don't realize they're choking up the flow of their emotional energy because it disrupts the balance of the yin and yang expressions of our emotions. And so think of all the athletes that just sit up and crunch and sit up and crunch to death, not realizing that they're pulling their chest down, pulling their head forward and trapping all that emotions. And that's disrupting the flow of their third chakra and second chakra and even root chakra energies. So the point that I'm making is that a proper assessment is like like if you don't know how to tune a guitar, it doesn't matter how good the guitar is, right? I.e., if you don't know how to tune Kobe Bryant, who's one of the best athletes in the world, then all you can do is general stretching or no stretching. Right. But to evaluate and realize okay, each of these muscles has a working relationship. And if one muscle in the front is short, the pec minor, tonic muscles actually steal the energy from their antagonists. So now your lower trapezius and middle trapezius are getting neurologically shut down because this tonic muscle is an energy hog and it can actually rob the energy from its antagonist. So it facilitates a snowball effect that goes downhill. So by assessing the body like Czech professionals are taught to do, they know all the orthopedic measurements that actually tell them, well, the muscles that pull that shoulder forward are these muscles. So if it's sitting forward, we know those muscles are too short. The point being is we're at a uh, sort of at a point now where, where, and I've been saying this for a long time. I've told personal trainers, look, you need as much knowledge as a physical therapist. You got to realize physical therapists play around with stretch cords and pink dumbbells. But people come to personal trainers with all sorts of problems and they got them doing walking lunges with their body weight and trying to do clean and jerks with, <laughs> with weight plates on end and kettlebell training, right? And they haven't had any of this developmental training. So it's actually quite crazy. But, but the, the reality of it is, is that, you know, the best you can do is, is get a book like my golf biomechanics manual or Tennis Biomechanics Manual by Lee Brandon and I, or the How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, that gives you the 20 key stretch tests you need to do. And as I show and taught you, you don't stretch what doesn't need to be stretched. Right. You only stretch what's tight, and you never stretch both sides equally if there is a unilateral imbalance. So if your left chest is tight, but your right one isn't, keep stretching the left one until it matches the right one. And if you still need more range of motion, then stretch them together, or you just maintain the imbalance mm. but i'm glad that you know that you realized how important that was and and the the one of the things that i will say about you that's really impressive is you haven't lost those good habits mm. like a lot of people behave very diligently while they're injured but a year later they're right back to doing the same shit that got them in trouble mm. and so i was very impressed to see how you've not only maintain your connection to these key principles, but use them when you're coaching your own athletes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you've actually brought up one thing that I just recalled that 
was another correlating factor in terms of the reflex relationships between the organs and the muscles is we looked into gut health. Yeah. You know, before I had come to you, I was working with Johnny Suarez. And actually, he, we worked together during the whole time. He was the check practitioner who really recommended I, you know, it's time to, to go see Paul. And, uh, you know, I had a whole history of, and that was another big challenge. I had a whole history of fungal and parasite infections. Right. You know, I had H. pylori, stomach ulcers. Mm-hmm. That went on for over two years. And so that was a miserable experience, especially because one of the first recommendations Johnny had to give me, because I was in uh, mid to late stage three adrenal fatigue. Yeah. I had a parasite, uh, high, high degrees of candida overgrowth. And then uh, the H. pylori, which was causing stomach ulcers, was he's like, you need to this was way back, but he goes, you need to stop training for a little bit. You yeah. need to rest and repair. Yeah, you don't have enough energy to heal yourself. Right. And even though we did a lot of work and he actually helped me in an amazing way kind of rid myself of those kind of those bugs and, and get back to a, a solid level of vitality, uh, I remember when we one of the tests that we did, especially when we were going over the thoracic outlet syndrome, was with the hand dynamometer. Yes. And we were looking at the correlation between the stomach and the left shoulder. Yeah. And my symptoms was on the left side. Yeah. And I remember... I think it was like, I forget what you had, what we drank. Cause I, I think it was espresso. Like we drank, we tested it, drank an espresso, tested it again. And like the grip on the left arm was worse. Yeah. Uh, if I recall correctly, but that was the first time that I had heard that the organs and the glands are on the same reflex channel as the muscle. So what might yeah. be expressing as a muscular issue could in fact be the organ. Or the it gland. is. It, it, yeah. And the organs are very expressive to the periphery. Because that's muscles are what they use to attenuate excess load. Uh, put it another way, muscles, because the organs don't have a fuse box. Like if you plug too many things into an outlet in your house, it'll blow a fuse, blow, blow the breaker. Mm. And you'll have to go reset the breaker. But if you keep doing the same thing, it, it's drawing too much current, which could catch your house on fire if that fuse wasn't there. So it blows the breaker. So, for example, when people are drinking a lot of caffeine, that's running their kidney system up at a very high level. That's like, um, you know, holding the foot, your foot on the floor in your car when you're driving and just keeping the engine under full load. And it's a question, okay, how long will it last before a valve flies through the hood of the car? <laughs> um, so what happens is when the system winds up like that, it has to establish the flow of energy within a parameter or it c- produces a neat little thing called dis-ease. Mm-hmm. So whenever an organ or gland system's running too fast for its capacity, it literally produces dis-ease. The system can't relax enough. It can't heal itself. It can't repair itself. It can't keep up with the load. So because the glands and organs are paired with muscles – what the system's wired to do neurologically through the sympathetic chain ganglia, which are the little nodules of nerves that run along the front of your spine, if you've ever seen an anatomy book, they then take the energy and the overload energy, the excess energy coming off that and pump it into a muscle and it causes a background level tension in the muscle. So the excess energy becomes converted into muscle contraction, which then converts to heat, which dissipates it out of the body. Mm. You understand mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So it's a very elaborate system. But then, for example, if you have a deficiency of energy in your stomach, I can give you light exercises, i.e. work and exercises that exercise the same muscles. And the muscles now become battery chargers and pump energy into the glander organ. So it can use that energy. 
That's why Johnny said you needed to stop working out because you're drawing so much energy off the system that the energy being made by the workouts can't be given to the glands and organs because it takes too much energy to do the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. You understand? Yeah. So if all the energy you're using, you're generating is sucked up by the activity and the musculoskeletal system, there's not enough left because if the organ systems start taking too much of that away, it puts you at risk of injury. So there's always this tug of war between muscles and organs about who gets what. Right. So the, the, it's a two-way system, but you have to always be aware of when the system is under load. So you say, okay, Mike, it's time to work in mm-hmm. so you can cultivate it. So then you use movement and energy, uh, the, the energy from the movement to charge the system back up so it doesn't collapse. Mm-hmm. And that's where most athletes today and coaches are completely lost because, you know, they just work athletes till they collapse. And then it's get up, boy, suck it up. Or it's what's the next strongest, well, you know, we went from Red Bull to five-hour energy. How'd that happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you went from a, a, a bomb to a nuclear bomb to a time-release nuclear bomb, right? Um so it's a process there, but, uh, you know, um, we talked about, uh, we talked about adaptations. You, what would you say you, how is your own, what, what, how is what you teach your athletes differ from the standard kettlebell training they would get at most of the certifications as far as how to lift? In other words, have you, uh, created a hybrid lifting technique that's more efficient and, and more orthopedically safe? Well, I think like, like, if, you know, I recently, you know, just, just finished this, uh, online program, mastering the kettle with that. Yes. I'm excited for... about that. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to begin marketing that right now because <laughs> it's the hands down the best program I've ever seen period. And it's extremely well built. Eli, who's our film and audio guy right here is just a genius with the camera and, and angles and beauty. And so it's, it's a stellar production. I mean, it's like Hollywood movie type camera work with great coaching. And, and it's, so it's like, I, I, when I watched it, I felt like I was right there with you. It was like, holy shit, is Mike actually right in front of me here? Or is that just my computer? So it's, it's very good. And, and the level of detail in there is, is beautiful. Thank you. Well, most people don't know that that, so there's uh, some of the assessments because there is assessments in there to make sure that train, you know, well, one question you ask is how, how is what I do different? Well, there is assessments, not only in the program, but what I do with all my, my, with all my athletes in order to know if they can meet the orthopedic prerequisites of whatever the movement that they're doing. Yeah. And so like that program, I mean, we, it's almost 26 hours long. It is a very deep dive into the technical aspects of kettlebell lifting but it's essentially, it's essentially what I wished when I first had kettlebells. You know, when I was first lifting kettlebells, I first came across a kettlebell when I was at Westside because we were using them for the power lifts. Loved them, came back, took some certifications. And at that time and still to this day, there was two kind of main schools or branches of thought. There was more of a, a Russian-type system or RKC, Pavel-esque type of system. And there was more of like a kettlebell sport, fitness, or sport-inspired way of training. And I've gone through education on both sides, very, very deep. 
And what I found was, at least in my experience, there is no one way to the top. There is no one method. But as a coach, what's most important to me is that the people, when they finish taking the program or finish through anything that I teach them, that they know how to think intelligently for themselves. And this yeah. is something me and you have talked about a lot. Yeah. And so certainly, and actually in the program, I give instruction on both schools of thought, but through my lens and doing things slightly differently. But first and foremost, as I share through my experience, how and when to apply which techniques and what, what modifications to make. Yeah. And so asking first and foremost, what's the goal or the objective? Yeah. Are you looking for more power? Are you looking more for strength endurance? And there's a few more questions there. Then who's the individual we're talking about? Is their gut inflamed? Should they even be doing any power movements? Right. Have they laid down the requisite stability, flexibility? If you're doing more of a sport inspired, which the mechanics without going too deep into it involves more of a pendulum-like mechanics of the lower body to kind of cycle into energy into the repetitions. But orthopedically, you need a, quite a bit of ankle dorsiflexion for the knees to move past the ankles for that mm-hmm. type of lifting. And so if someone has restricted ankles, no matter how great uh, – if they're in a sport there or an activity that they want to develop that quality, they're just going to be proning or rolling in the E version of the foot. Yeah. So you need to first check the ankle get that restored, then restore the function of the body, get someone to move well, then you can put them through, you know, they can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this program, and actually we we shot it, I don't know if you, we shot it three times. We shot every, there's over 450 plus videos in the program mm-hmm. because as I was going it throughout the process, I was like, wow, this would be really helpful for the trainer. This would be really helpful for the trainer. And after a year went by, we said, we got to get something out. But it is truly a program that by the end of it, the trainer has a thought process in terms of what is the logical and methodical step when someone first comes to you before you even load them. Mm-hmm. What do they need to do? Do they have, you know, there's an arm raise test in there. Do they, do they have the ability to raise the arm overhead without compensating somewhere else along the spine, the pelvis? Because if they can't pass just a simple pre-check with that requisite, then should they be jerking? Should they be going overhead? Should they be doing a Turkish getup or whatever it is? It's like, yeah, have them satisfy those requirements first. And so it's a step-by-step system. And, and, and it shows truly if someone really, really does not only want to take their lifting to the next level, but do so for them and or their clients, if they're a trainer in a safe way, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's got everything in there that a trainer would need to truly set themselves apart as someone special. And so from the assessment side of things to understanding the technical sides of both schools of thought through my lens, through understanding that there's over a hundred movement variations in there. And it's a program that you can do with just one bell. Yeah. And then, you know, thanks to you quite a bit, uh, you know, the program also has, uh, when someone gets the full program working in lectures. Yeah. I was going to get into that. Um, so, um, you know, we, you and I got into uh, working in pretty good, and uh, I'm just curious now that you've had several years of working with the concepts of working out versus working in, um, where do you feel that plays in your own athletic development, your ability to sustain yourself, and uh, um, how, how bad of a risk are athletes taking not knowing how to work in? Yeah, I think for me at least, like now with my schedule being so busy, and even though I've taken a break for the last year from competing so I can focus more on uh, traveling and teaching, what I use with myself and also with the athletes that I work with, like I really feel like, yes, if you're in a strength sport, like you need to train strength training and power training if that's what you, those qualities you need. But to be honest, 
And I feel like personally, like I'm a more well-rounded and better athlete now than I've ever been. Yeah. And I feel like if someone had the proper flexibility and stability, so had a solid program there, was very technically proficient in the lifts or the sport that they're doing, whether it's uh, mixed martial arts or if let's say you're a fireman and you need to be able to get your have the skill to get up off the ground without you know with carrying something on your shoulder or moving people if you had the technical skill it takes to do that specific movement and at a very high level so you're moving very efficiently you have the the postural uh stability and flexibility and you have the energy reserves so that when it is time to push it you can go there and that's where working in i really feel like those three things technical skill flexibility stability and then the energy reserves to do that, whatever it is, I really feel the amount of hours that someone needs to train will dramatically go down and the result in which they do will dramatically go up. So it's like we can spend less time in the gym mm-hmm. if we are supporting ourselves in the right way with good food, good working in. And the working in, for me, it was the, one of the biggest game changers because like not only does it involve you know synchronized breath with movement, mm-hmm. and that is a huge component. Like I think... Out of the assessments that I've done, there hasn't been one person who's had a breathing dysfunction that hasn't also simultaneously had a core dysfunction. Yeah. And so it's like, and if we're thinking about the core as the, as the stabilization center of the body, force productions from the ground up, but we have to first stabilize from the core down. So even if someone is eating good food or most likely they're not eating good food, especially if they're an athlete, that's just classic but they have a breathing dysfunction with most everyone has, yeah. there's no way that they'll be able to stabilize to their potential and, and properly. Yeah. And so through working in and again, through some of those, those, uh, the flexibility and stability work, I really feel like not only is it a game changer in terms of how you can physically stabilize, but from the energetic side so that you're not always your, uh, what, what do we say? Uh, so that you're training and not draining. Right. The other thing too, is most people don't know how to breathe properly. Mm. And when you train, at least the way I teach people how to work in, I, the first thing I do is teach people how to have a normal diaphragmatic breath. And the importance of the first two-thirds of your breath coming from your abdomen before your chest moves and the chest only happening in the last one-third. And to really get a full breath, you have to keep your abdominal wall quite flexible. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, your abs are like a trampoline that gets tighter and tighter and tighter and every time you inhale your diaphragm has to force all your internal organs down and out against the spring of that abdominal wall which is why so many people end up with thoracic outlet problems and chronic neck tension because those scalene muscles have to lift the entire rib cage while the diaphragm's pushing down but imagine if you're trying to lift the rib cage and the abdominals are so tight, it's like trying to stretch a, uh, one of the springs that you use to close and open a garage door. You know, it's like a lot of load on those little tiny muscles and the neck muscles. And so the point I'm making is not only is working in important from um, an energy balancing and, and using movement to create anabolic energy where working out is catabolic or tissue destructive – Working in is anabolic. It actually speeds healing and speeds recover and recovery and is a form of meditation. It centers your mind. It's like dynamic mindfulness training. But because you're practicing on a regular basis a full diaphragmatic breath, you learn to feel what oxygen does to your body and to your mind. And you also then can go into any kind of an athletic event 
and your body knows how to breathe properly. So you get someone in a long cycle kettlebell competition and they can't breathe properly. All the way back in 1934, Joel E. Goldthwaite identified in the book Body Mechanics and Health and Disease that the average person was only using two-thirds of their normal resting breathing capacity because of postural imbalances and muscle imbalances and things that restrict what I just talked about. So imagine an athlete who's only getting two-thirds of his normal lung volume because of these kind of imbalances in his brain just forgetting how to breathe properly. So it doesn't matter whether you're a marathon runner or an Olympic lifter, you still have to recover between sets. And if you can't generate oxygen, you're just going to slow your recovery down. That's why even after intense lifts like 4RM, you realize you're starting to breathe faster, right? Like, whoa, that's because it's paying back the uh, debt for ATP. So, um, you know, you, you do a good job of mixing those two together. Those are, those are, you know, really, um, important. Uh, what have you found the effects of working in to be for you, um, emotionally, mentally, and in other areas of your life outside of just athletic performance? Yeah. Uh, I'd love to share on that. And and one thing, even just touching on our last point that comes up is, you know, one of the, even with proper or quote unquote proper breath training, like even when I remember working on my breath, like I was very much trying to breathe through my belly diaphragmatically. But one of the things I didn't realize was how important it is to breathe in 3D. So Uh back laterally and then elevation. And like, you know, anyone who's listening, like you can do the simple test or, or exercise, which is also an exercise where whether you lay over Swiss ball or you lay on the floor, hands on your forehead, and you do kind of like crocodile breathing because when you're trying to breathe through your belly, your belly runs into the ground. And so it gives you a lot easier ability to access and breathe posteriorly through the lower back. Mm-hmm. And through every breath, we're pumping the discs. And yeah. So I remember just that, just really focusing on 3D breathing. And if you take that 3D breathing application, let's just say the kettlebell sport, if you're using a, a sport-specific rack technique where you really – your elbows prevent the belly from going forward. You have to learn yeah. how to breathe into your lower spine. Which is the first area to tighten up because the instant you have anything wrong with your core, your low back muscles and quadratus lock down because they're now doing a lot more work to stabilize your lumbar spine because you've just lost your entire transverse abdominus and its normal capacity to create hoop tension, which stabilizes by pulling laterally. So you get hoop tension when you wrap, if you wrap your arms around someone and hug them, the pressure you create is called hoop tension. So you ever had a tendonitis and wrap tape around your wrist and all of a sudden you could swing your racket or lift your weight? That's because when you wrap tape around a tendon, it creates hoop tension. So now when you say you're dorsiflexing your wrist, like doing a wrist curl, you're lifting your wrist up. So the top of your hand is moving toward your forearm, not down flex, like you'd flex your muscles, but lifting it up. So say you have a tendonitis there. Now that tape touches the tendon and the load from the tendon tightening is distributed into the tape and the tape distributes the load in a circle. That's what a weight belt does. When you wear a lifting belt, you're doing from the outside what the transverse abdominus should do from the inside. So it creates a circle of tension that you can push your belly into to create stiffness in the spine. The problem is the weight belt does not connect into the lumbar spine. So the point being, though, 
when you're creating hoop tension, you're actually able to stabilize more force. So if you can't breathe work properly and use your core, you can't create a hoop tension. So now your back has to say, how am I going to hold this thing together? It's falling apart. So you get massive contractions in the low back muscles and the hamstrings come right behind it because they're now trying to hold you up and they're trying to reduce your lumbar curve because if you don't have a core, then when you load, say you put a barbell on your back to squat it, your lumbar curve starts to slide forward because there's nothing holding it back. It's not able to stabilize properly. So the brain turns the hamstring muscles on to tuck the tail under to stack the vertebra up like like stones, like a stone stack. So all those muscles are trying to hold on to this dynamic stack of stones. And so it leads to all sorts of problems back there. But like you were saying, if you uh, lay over a Swiss ball or put your lay on your stomach, when your stomach can't go out, it makes it much easier to open your back. And so you can actually do stretching for the respiratory muscles. When you Every time you take a deep breath like that, it actually has a stretching effect on the muscles that pull the ribs down and hold them in place like that. Mm. So it can be very therapeutic. Did I cut you off there? No, no. no. I mean, well, one of your questions was like, how has it helped me in other ways aside from maybe just more the physical side of things. And I think just getting oxygen to these areas yeah. that I wasn't potentially nearly to my potential doing earlier just opened me up quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so breathing in the lower side, breathing through the ribs. And because, you know, working in is breath with movement, especially taking simple exercises that I was familiar with, whether it's breathing squats or uh, whatever, maybe dowel rod deadlifts, whatever it was, um, it was a meditative practice that I was willing to do because the exercises were quite familiar with me mm. and that, that practice and that, that discipline or that, that, that thing that I would do after every workout or sometimes in between work or in the middle of workout sessions, I found transferring into other areas of my life. So yeah. working in active, like active meditation work, but also more still type extra um, activities, restorative activities like floating is one of the things that I do anywhere from, minimum one day a week sometimes three days a week yeah and so that is like having the the practice of working in made meditation so much more um i was so much more willing to engage in that practice and so now a lot of my visualization work uh happens in the float tank yeah and so you have the magnesium you're not under the forces of gravity yeah and so i love that environment and also as as part of my spiritual practice in terms of trying to understand myself at a deeper level uh, I think the working in was a great way to meet me as a competitive athlete where I was at. Yeah. And then it's just given me the the motivation, inspiration, and empowerment to also carry that into other areas of my life as well. Yeah. So, you know, we've covered quite a lot. The closing question I want to ask you is how do you use all your athletic training and disciplines and everything that you've learned to engage life from a spiritual perspective? I think one of the things that comes up for me, um, athletics taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. Athletics, working through adversity, staying with the process, but truly understanding myself. And it's a continual practice at a much deeper level through kind of these tests and through these challenges. And I feel like in the gym, which is where so many of the lessons that I've learned have been taught, it's really shown me and taught me in terms of when things are uncomfortable or when you're out of your comfort zone uh, or when you're fearful or when you don't know if you can make it, 
when that fear comes up to lean into it, to face the challenge head on, because what the potential other side that's going to, you're going to grow from that will happen would be incredible growth. And I think for me, that is a spiritual process. So through achieving master of sport, uh, while going through those injuries and well, when I was in it at the time, like it was hard to see the other side. Yeah. But now, like looking back, like that was a huge spiritual growth process for me. Yeah. Um, so through the athletic kind of adversity and, and continuing to explore new athletic expressions, I feel they work hand in hand because mm-hmm. through that testing, it's it's meeting the challenge, it's working through the challenge, it's learning about yourself throughout it, but also having a relationship with that activity to where it's something that I can do for the rest of my life. Um, yeah. Well, you know, spirituality, If you, it, the one of the definitions I use of it is when someone's practicing spirituality, it means they're consciously seeking connection to a greater whole. So someone who's overly bound in their ego really only thinks of themselves, Right. And then someone who learns, wow, you know, I might be a really good athlete, but I can't get along without my therapist or my coach or my parents or my family support. They grow. They realize, oh, my God, I really have to pay attention and respect the needs of the people who support me or I can't make it alone because without a good therapist or a good coach or a good mentor or good food – or good training equipment, right? We go to the gym, but we forget someone made that equipment. There's a reason I have a Laco equipment in there. I find it to be really good. So in essence, when you realize, wow, a Laco's living their dream by creating great equipment, and it gives me the opportunity to live my dream. And so I can expand myself spiritually by reaching out to a company like that and saying, I really value the gift you've given me in the world with your equipment. And you realize one people appreciate that acknowledgement, but then you, you start to find, well, I'll give you an example. And, I, and, and this is what I'm leading to look at what you do now. Look at what your injury gave you the opportunity to learn. And now go back to when you and I first started rehabbing you and doing our work together How many more people are you connecting to because you have something to share with them that was a product of a crisis that you had to be a spiritual warrior and go face into or you couldn't come out the other side of it? That's the key point. Yeah, I I would totally agree. That's that's what's what's been one big part in giving me uh, more of an, an authentic teaching experience to share with others. So I can relate when someone's been injured. I can relate when someone's focused on one system and thought it was the end all be all. (laughs) That happens a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Especially with, with coaches that we look up to or kind of losing our sense of self. Like that's happened to me time and time again. Um, So those injuries has given me an appreciation and empathy more than anything else. Being in a job that I knew wasn't my heart's calling for eight Mm -hmm. years. And it's like, I have a lot more empathy if it's anything it's taught me to have a lot more empathy for people and to connect with people and to truly, you you said something that, that I feel like really hits home is the, the, the fact that nothing that we do is truly, especially when it's worthwhile, a one person thing. No, I've really been learning the importance of community 
yeah. and how like your gifts inspire and benefit my gifts and how each one of us are a contributing factor to the greater good. Yeah. And so a lot of times, even now when I teach, like I remember, I think Bruce Lee said this, uh, you know, first you need structure to, before you can go structure list. And now when I teach to the best of my ability, I'm usually very organized and methodical when I teach, but now the exercise for me is to be more relaxed when I teach yeah. and to feel some of the students' energy and also really every single class is quite different because I'm learning from the students every single time. I'm learning from them, they're learning from me, and we're all growing in the process. So it's been a really cool experience to now try to teach from that place and also te- every time I teach, I learn. Yeah. Um, so it's been a really cool and enjoyable road in terms of what I'm doing right now. So if I'm going to give you a big question. Oh, shoot. How, how is this whole process that you've been through being Mike Salemi for, what, 30-something? 30 32. 32 years now? 32. Has this process changed your perception, experience, or orientation of whatever you think the source of all this is? Life? The source of life. Some people call it God. Some people call it the zero point field. Some people say, I don't know. Some people um, think that if you can't weigh it and measure it, it doesn't exist. So we came out of a chemical soup and they're called scientific materialists. How has your process of dealing with your own pain, facing your challenges, learning things like meditation techniques, inner visualization techniques, power animals, painting, uh, plant medicines, you know, how has this changed what your perception of whatever's behind the show is? Man, that was a good one. <laughs> hey, man. Well, I gave, I gave you a cup of shot of espresso before oh, this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, one thing for, for certain – is a feeling that we're all connected. Yeah. Isn't that wild? It sounds crazy, but like seeing yourself in another, and f- more importantly, not even just seeing, but feeling. And I think when you're still enough through meditation work, or especially through, for me, like plant medicines have been a huge, huge healing benefit in my life, stripping back layers of who I thought I was. And, and also seeing once again, that we're all connected. Yeah. And that how I treat myself, is also how I'm treating you, how I'm treating the world. Yeah. And that's also a huge inspiration for wanting to better the world and better myself because I know that if I better myself, then I'm in turn bettering everyone I come in contact with or everyone who takes a program or everyone I meet. And so the biggest thing for me is is I would say that it's it's this ongoing exploration and ongoing felt experience that we're truly all connected. And so um, that's been the the biggest thing that that – uh, what, whatever we want to call them, God, the universe, uh, whatever we want to say that, that, that is us. That is mm. me speaking to you right here. That is yeah. you looking at me. And um, yeah, it might sound, you know, to, to some, well, they're, they're listening to your podcast. They're, they're, it doesn't sound crazy or weird, <laughs> but uh, especially in, in a lot of the circles that maybe I'm around the strength and conditioning circles. Um, it's a felt it's, it's real just mm. because we can't see it just because you said we can't quantify it it is fucking there and it it truly is, it is real. So, um, and it's vibrational, it's energetic, it's a felt experience. And um, 
I've just gotten so much more fulfillment out of life, out of the work that I do, out of why I do what I do, the people that are in my life, appreciation, gratitude. Yeah. Um, gratitude and empathy are two big things. So, um, yeah, I'm grateful for that, that experience, and it's an ongoing practice, yeah. I think, you know, I'll close by quoting Osho because he, he of, of his many quotes that I have in my head from studying him for so many years, um, he, he really, you know, most people have an idea of what this thing called God is or spirit or whatever they chalk it up to. But one of the things that Osho goes into at quite length and with quite good humor is how people get so fixated and willing to fight and kill for th- to defend their belief about what God is. But he says, God is a verb, not a noun. People fight over nouns, descriptive words, but you just describe the verb of the experience of love, the experience of connection, the experience of oneness, the experience of community leading to unity, right? Really, it's the unity that makes a community a cohesive experience or even a culture. But people get so busy with what's for dinner tonight and how much money do I have, they forget to pay attention to what is it that's really the invisible glue holding us all together, right? And so... I think that um, we can close today by saying all of this has been to remind everybody that God is a verb and the highest form of God is love and you're making love when you're doing what you love to do. And if you're working for your dad and your heart hurts, it's your heart calling you, your soul saying, Mike, you're a very disciplined young man and you love your family. But there's a point at which you have to follow your heart or you're not going to go out into the world and truly figure out who you are and why you're here. And when you do figure out who you are and why you're here, you usually figure out why we're all here. (laughs) And that's the verb. (laughs) We're verbing together. So thanks for verbing with me, man. This has been been, uh, super enjoyable and super fun. Thank you. And thanks for sharing. And master the kettlebell we will uh when we close the podcast and my beautiful wife penny comes on with her very sexy english accent (laughs) which is a cambridge university accent Um, i probably got that very wrong and she'll chew me out later Uh, she'll tell you about the specials we have and you can come join mike and i for a workout we are going to inspire you to train with us we did a cool little workout today so we're going to show you how to go find that workout and uh, enjoy a session with us. And we will share how we integrate art with our workouts, huh, buddy? Yeah. You get to see the beautiful mandala that the two wild kids made in the gym today. So, Mike, I love you, buddy. Thank you for sharing so much love with the world and just being the perfect Mike Salemi, man. Thank you, Paul. Keep up the great work. I hope a billion people do your kettlebell program and you have to do Tai Chi half the day just to keep up with it all. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Mike Salemi. Follow Mike on Facebook at Mike Salemi Official or on Instagram at Mike.Salemi. 
From now until the 12th of June, you can enroll in Mike's Kettlebell Mastery online course at a 20% discount. You'll also receive some special bonus content created by Mike and Paul just for Living 4D with Paul Check listeners. Go to checkinstitute.com forward slash kettlebell dash mastery and use the code check 20 when you check out. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog. <laughs>